Turn with me to Hosea and chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3, as we shall be considering together um, that same section under the title or theme that ours is the God of a second chance. Ours is the God of a second chance. While you are turning there, uh, let me quickly give us the landscape. Now, this evening we'll be having the Lord's Supper, and so it's going to be, I hope, a briefer uh, time of meditating on God's Word. We have been making our way through the minor prophets under the theme major lessons in the minor prophets major lessons in the minor prophets we've already answered the question who were the minor prophets we've seen that there are about 12 of them and when you go through you notice that some of them functioned before israel was sent into captivity others functioned while israel was in captivity and then the last bunch of about four functioned after the exiles came back from captivity we however began to look at the very first of uh, the um, the minor prophets and that is hosea hosea and so far we've looked at both chapter one and chapter two we noticed the shock treatment that uh, God um, used in telling his servant, uh, the prophet Hosea, to marry a promiscuous woman, a woman that he knew uh, already was one that lived uh, a, a sexually immoral life. And to have children with her that now one is not sure these are my children and these someone else's children and so on, what are referred to as children of wardom, children of promiscuity, having children through her. And that shock treatment was primarily to enable the people of Israel to see how God viewed their idolatry. That really, as they are doubling in Asherah poles and in Baals and so on and so forth, that this is what it amounts to. That really our relationship with God should be such that that place is only for Him. No one else, nothing else. He is preserved above all. We went on to see in chapter 2 the way in which... Um, God finally uh, says, I am going to send the Israelites into captivity and then I will restore them afterwards. And when you read the whole of uh, chapter 2, it's amazing how, to begin with, it's definitely Hosea talking about his wife, that I'm, I'm going to uh, send her away as a form of um, discipline, chastisement, in fact, he even says to the children that uh, she may be your mother, but she's not, definitely not my wife. That's how strongly 
uh, he felt. But as we made our way through the chapter, somewhere along the line it becomes pretty obvious that there is a changing of gears and it is no longer Hosea speaking about his wife. It is the God, Yahweh, speaking about Israel. And so that's the way the entire chapter finally ends. The first part is about God uh, disciplining his people, or better still, Hosea disciplining his wife. Um, and then the second part is God restoring his people, and it is really um, Yahweh restoring his people rather than, uh, what's his name, Hosea doing that. Okay, so that's the ground that we have covered thus far. And today we are in a very short chapter, very, very short. It's, uh, I think, chapter 3 has verse 1 to verse 5. Very, very short. Uh, but in this, we see something of uh, Israel's restoration. Israel being restored. But at the same time, uh, that God goes back to the imagery. He goes back to the picture. And he, it is pictured in um, Hosea being told to go and get back his wife. Uh, she, she's been sent away because of her uh, adulterous life. And now he's being told, okay, you now go and get her. And let's face it. That is definitely shock treatment. That's definitely shock treatment. Very few of us think that the, the restoration of a backslider or the restoration of someone who has apostatized from the faith is, is something this grave. That, that, that it is like a man who goes back to his wife who had gone into a life of adultery and now going to say, okay, I want you back. But that's exactly the picture that God is using here because he wants the Israelites to wake up and say, this is wrong, we should never go this way. Our hearts, our lives should be given to God and to God completely and to God only, whatever temptations and trials come our way. Well, let's quickly make our way then through these three, uh, rather three uh, points, but five verses. First of all, Hosea tells us that God commanded him to love Goma again. We find that in verse 1. Hosea chapter 3 and verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, you know, when you're reading commentators, you often find that they, because they're functioning from the original and also functioning from various uh, versions of the Bible, 
you find that there are a lot of uh, contradictions and some tend to feel that chapter 3 is simply a, a replay of chapter 1, that this is God saying to him exactly what he said to him in chapter 1. So it's simply um, a repeat. And uh, I will show that it obviously uh, is, is not. Uh, rather, the picture here is pretty obvious. It is that he is being asked to go back to his wife. Now, some of the reasons why some people think that way is because Goma is not mentioned in chapter 3. Whereas in chapter 1 and verse 3, it said, So he went and took Goma, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So they tend to say, look, obviously, it doesn't look like it is the same woman. Uh, so it, if it is the same woman, then it is sort of just saying it all over again. But um, I think it's pretty obvious that it is, it is her. And uh, oh yes, part of the problem is that little word, again, it can be moved into different places. And some versions actually say, the Lord said again to me, go and love a woman who is loved by another man. Now, how do we know that it is Goma? Well, first of all, if it was not Goma, if it was not his first wife, the whole point of restoration cannot be illustrated. The whole idea about restoration is that the Lord is going to somebody who had already professed to be his, went away, and the Lord brings that person back. That's the whole idea behind restoration. But even more, what you will notice in this verse is the fact that uh, God uses, or let's say Hosea uses, a different word from the word that he used in chapter 1 about this woman's sexual immorality. In chapter 1, he simply used the equivalent of the word promiscuous. Okay? So, uh, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, Take to your wife, to yourself, a wife of wardom, simply of prostitution or promiscuity, and have children of wardom. But in chapter 3, if you notice, he uses the word adultery, which makes it very, very different from the previous one. Chapter 3, verse 1, And the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man, and here it is, and is an adulteress. Clearly there, it must be his wife. Because there's, there's, there's no way, in fact, it doesn't even make sense that God should say to, to Hosea, 
you go and propose love to an adulteress who's not your wife. In other words, she's somebody else's wife. Because an adulteress is someone who's married and then is having an extramarital affair. So for, for God to say, okay, now Hosea, you also be the third wheel now. You, you, you go in and also make your proposal there that you love her so that you can get her. But she's actually someone else's wife. Obviously, that's out of question. Initially, she was just promiscuous. She was sleeping around and everybody knew that she was loose. And then a prophet goes and proposes love to her and marries her. She continues in her promiscuity. Now it is adultery. He sends her away. And now he is going back to that same woman who is living in adultery, who was his wife, and is now saying to her, I love you, I want you back. I think that becomes pretty clear especially when you now see what God says in the second half of this verse. He says, Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. In other words, that's the kind of love that I have for Israel. They've lived a life of idolatry, I'm sending them away and I am bringing them back. I am telling them afresh that I love them. That's really what this is all about. And that makes it a perfect illustration, a very perfect illustration, because they are initially his, then they go to worship idols, and then he is bringing them back. Now, let's pause for a moment. H have you ever had a relative who has ended up in a situation where they've had to break camp in the marriage because of having an affair, the other party having an affair? Have you ever listened to the kind of talk relatives give when the person now says, I want to get that person back? There is a crisis. How do you do anything like They must have fed him something. Or fed her something, whichever way it is, that the person should want to go back to the person who has been living an adulterous life. Ha! Huh? It's unthinkable. If it was in the days of the Israelites, uh, they, they would even collect dust and sand and put it on top of their heads to say this has never happened before in, in Israel, that a person should do a thing like this. In other words, this is difficult in real life. Yet God is trying to illustrate that that's exactly what happens with him. Exactly what happens with him. 
Now, in a sense, even spiritually, we all know what this means. That often, when a person has undergone church discipline and because they've been stubbornly hanging on to sin and finally they've gone wherever it is they want to go and then they come back after a number of years and then they come and for restoration. We find it difficult, don't we? You know? Your, your chemistry, the, your whole system just finds it difficult to, to change gears and, and renew the relationships. Just find it difficult. The, the betrayal still eats away at you. That sense of betrayal still eats away at you. And yet, that's what God does in bringing backsliders back. Amazing. But let's quickly go on because what is amazing here is how Hosea obeys God. Look at verse 2 and verse 3. So, he says, So, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days you shall not play the war <clears throat> or belong to another man so will I also be to you <clears throat> now that's amazing just like that God said go and he went and brought her back to himself it's obviously a little surprising when we read this statement, he bought her for 15 shekels. What does this mean? Well, when we go to chapter 2, which we've already seen, what basically happened was that when um, Hosea kicked his wife out of his home, she became very desperate in terms of how to survive out there. Initially, one of the reasons why she was enjoying extramarital affairs was because of what these men were giving her. But the moment he kicked her out, as is often the case, the tap ran dry. And so in the process, as was the case in Israel before, she then sold herself as a slave to somebody else to save the, those individuals. You will notice um, in chapter 2, I'll begin reading from verse 5. Okay, maybe let me include the picture in verse 2 downwards. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I'm not her husband. I've already talked about that. That she put away her warring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born. In other words, I'll get everything from her, and here's what will happen. And make her like a wilderness, and make her like a patched land, and kill her with thirst. That's what I will reduce her to, to a position of a complete beggar. And then he goes on to say, um, halfway through verse 5, For she said, I will go after my lovers 
who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So that's the way she was enjoying the extramarital affairs, the kind of things that she was getting. And now he says, as I kick you out of my life, I'm going to make sure that you will find it literally impossible for you to access those same lovers of yours. Verse 6, Therefore, I will edge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Okay, so there was something of him deliberately wanting her to undergo a real period of suffering. And part of that, in order to survive, was a sailing of oneself into slavery. So now when he goes to get her back, basically, he pays the money that the slave owner would have paid her in order to bring her in, <clears throat> into that slavery. And that's this payment that is here. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lithic of barley. What is a little more confusing is the statement that he makes to this woman. It's a little more difficult to understand it in verse 3, but it becomes fairly evident in verse 4 and verse 5. Verse 4 and verse 5. But <clears throat> let me give you the theory, and then I'll prove it in, when we go to verse 4 and verse 5. He says to her in verse 3, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days, you shall not play the war, the prostitution element, or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. Uh, the statement basically amounts to something like this. I'm bringing you back, but there's, there's going to be no intimacy between us for a season. And during that season when there's no intimacy, I'm also putting a demand on you that you will not go out and start having affairs with other men in order to satisfy your lust. When that season is over, that's when we will come together and have no more relations. Okay. How does that come through? Well, let's just quickly read verse 4 and verse 5 because there he is now saying, I'm bringing you back, but when I bring you back, initially I'm going to deprive you of some of the benefits that were there in my relationship with you. After that, that's when I will restore the full relationship. Verse 4 and verse 5. <clears throat> In a sense, I'm going ahead of myself, but that's because we're all looking like question marks when you're looking at me. So let's quickly look at it. So verse 4 is now telling us that the spiritual parallel of what is happening. 
for the children of Israel shall dwell many days. Okay, so if we go back to verse uh, 3, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. So basically, the God who has told him what to do or to say to his wife is now giving the reason why he wants it that way. So he's saying, even for me with Israel, they will dwell with me for many days. But notice, without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod, and then finally, or household gods. So he's basically saying that the, the benefits that I give to my people, the, the, the governing authority and security that I give to them initially, I will not give to them. So in other words, they come back to the promised land, but still under captivity. Okay? So they don't set up their entire monarchy as they were before they went into captivity. They come back, yes, but they are still under the Babylonian or Persian at that time, Persian captivity. Okay? Um, but also notice that when they come back, he also adds, without household gods. And that's what the idolatry was. It was in these household gods. In other words, exactly what he had said earlier, or Hosea had said to his wife, when he said, you shall not play the war. So, no prostitution. I'm not giving you everything that you are supposed to have in, in the marriage relationship, but no prostitution on the outside. I'm not giving you everything that's supposed to be yours, as a nation under me, but you're not going to go to idols and start praying to them. So it's basically that parallel. And then, finally, he says, afterward, verse 5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So after that season, I will now renew the relationship with them completely. They will be under their own king, under their own lord. The structures of security will be there, and they will genuinely worship me with the fear that is due to me there will be a complete restoration. Okay, so assuming I have convinced you, we can quickly go back just for one minute in chapter 3, rather verse 3. I, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the war or belong to another man. So will I also be to and that's normal. In any relationship, that when you have wronged somebody and you've wronged in such a big way, you can't just, as if it's switching on a light or switching it off, you can't just 
everything comes back to normal. After all, I said I'm sorry, and you said I forgive you. There's always that season in which you, you, you feel regret. The relationship is not back to normal. On one hand, you know that where you went, that was wrong. I shouldn't have gone that way. And indeed, to go back that way is a complete disaster in my thinking. But at the same time, life is not back to normal again. It's not. And yet, I have to prove my repentance by the difficulty that I am going through for now. I should prove my repentance. In due season, life will come back to normal. There's something to be said for that here. Because that principle is real. And even as God now applies with the people of Israel here, it is equally real that upon returning from the backslidden state, upon returning from the uh, period of captivity, if you were to go into the promised land that's now been given back to them, rebuilding the previous life took time. They had to now rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They took time to rebuild the temple. And even when they had rebuilt it, those who saw the previous temple, when they now saw the one that had been put up, they wept. They cried like little children, rather, like people who've lost their baby. They wept because it was nothing compared to what it was before. And it took years, may I suggest to you, actual centuries. It took more than 400 years before this David their king was given to them. And it was actually Jesus Christ who was now given to them to be their king forever. So, what is being illustrated here is something that in the end actually happened. So at this point, this was still very much in the future, but it happened. What do we learn here? I think there are two lessons which are cru crucial. First of all, it is this. God's love for his people is an everlasting love. You backslide, you apostatize, you go after the world, God never says, okay, I have nothing to do with you now. You've lost your salvation. You're now an unbeliever. It's over. He never does that. Instead, he chastises in order to restore. 
We saw that in chapter 2, didn't we? Let, let me read verse 16 downwards. In that day, declares the Lord, you sh will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my bow. So I'm going to reverse this. For I will remove the names of the bowels from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. This is after the chastisement. He's saying, I'll bring you back. I'll bring you back. I have loved you with an everlasting love. God says, I will bring you back. 21. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer, and they shall, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Exactly what verse 5 says in chapter 3. They shall return and seek the Lord their God. They shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. God our God is a restoring God. He's a God of second chance. He is. When God's people backslide, He will bring them back. Because the love He has for them is an everlasting love. But number two, When you come back, it's not the glory that you once had. When you come back, there is that season where it's still hard, it's still painful. You feel like, ah, I'm not loved here, I might as well just go back. The, the people of God don't seem to really care for me. You don't feel like you are truly forgiven. You are truly welcome in the midst of the church. And even as you read your Bible and as you pray, it's not what it once was. There's still that season of real, real trial when God is testing whether you really, really have come back for him and for him alone. That's the reason why we must warn believers who want to just sort of go out for a season. They even say, 
uh, you know, once I do this, I'll come and confess, and then I will be restored. <laughs> Try that. Put your hands in the fire, and then just say, oh, sorry. Let's see how long it takes to heal. It's painful, and it takes time. It takes time. For such individuals, it's something that we need to be balanced about. On one hand, yes, we don't lose our salvation. Our God wants us back. But on the other, you don't play with sin. Because this God is going to give you this season of dryness. This season where you are back. But hey, look at the kind of life that you are living. So, let's have this balanced view that was here between Hosea and Goma. It illustrates the way God deals with us. Ultimately, friends, let's remember, ours is a loving relationship with God. That's why I'm grateful that we are ending with the Lord's Supper. Because Ultimately, the Lord's Supper was a betrothal when it was put together. It was an engagement party that was being illustrated here. Because in Israel, like our own days here in Africa, engagement was not just between two people. Somebody sort of kneeling with a car, you know, ring somewhere in hiding. No, it, it, it was where you even send a go-between and the families sit and agree and you leave something there that says now nobody else can come in and start talking to us about this bride. She's now yours. That engagement is what was symbolized by the breaking of bread. And what would happen after that is that the man would now go to prepare the bridal home, where, the matrimonial home rather, where he's going to bring his wife. He's gone. He's not worrying that she might change her mind or you know, some priest charming might show up and so on. No, no, no. He's not worrying about that. Because it's done. And even her, he's gone. She knows that there has been something that is almost as strong as marriage. That's the reason why with respect to Joseph and Mary, he didn't say, well, we'll just break up this relationship after he discovers she's pregnant. No, he said he was going to divorce her secretly. But it was, the actual word is divorce her. Because it was really serious. This betrothal, this engagement. And that's what Jesus has done with us. Before the marriage feast of the Lamb, he has engaged us through the meal that we often refer to. That on the night 
that he was betrayed, he took bread. And he was basically entering into this engagement with our souls. He was saying, I love you. I want you to be mine. The whole of you. I'm not to share you with sin. I'm not to share you with idols. I want you to be mine. And that engagement, he prayed, and upon giving thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And remember what he says, until I come. So we have a very huge responsibility to make sure that we remain 100% his. 